and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'm be your host. So today's episode is going to be about uh, a wonderful, beautiful movie um, that I have loved for years and years, um, and that is 1999's Jawbreaker. So this movie was written and directed by Darren Stein, um, who is an out gay filmmaker. Um, he had had one movie before this called Sparkler. Um, that was starring Freddie Prince Jr. and Jamie Kennedy. Don't really know where you can find that to watch unless you, like, find a VHS of it or something like that, but um, that actually pretty much helped him get to make Jawbreaker. Um, This idea of the story um, in particular comes from Darren Stein's real life, I guess. He lived in, um, grew up in the Valley of Los Angeles, California, I guess, and uh, he knew these girls who would kidnap each other on their birthdays. And he just thought, like, well, what would happen if one of those pranks went wrong, you know? And um, he initially wanted to make it a horror movie. But uh, as he was writing it, he realized it was more of kind of a dark comedy. And so that's where we get the dark comedy aspect of this movie. Um A little information about uh, the film itself. So this film was released January 30th of 1999 at Sundance, um, where I think also um, two of the stars, Rose McGowan and Rebecca Gayhart, they actually went and did the Sundance circuit, which is cool. (laughs) And then it was released February 19th, 1999. Uh, I believe it was only in theaters for like three weeks or so. Um, and then it was pulled. The budget of this movie uh, fluctuates between either three million or three and a half million. I've seen both figures out there online. Uh, Darren Stein himself said that this was a three million dollar movie, um, which was way less than the other teen movies at around this time were getting. Um, but he was still able to make make something of it, you know. And then the box office was three point one million dollars. So you know, it it either didn't make its money back quite, or it might have made a little bit of its money back, but uh, not really a whole lot uh, in terms of just box office. But this movie did find a audience in, you know, home video release. That's definitely how I watched it when I was a kid, pretty much. Um, the front cover of this, like, VHS that I probably watched uh, was, like, super colorful, and it had uh, Rose McGowan, Julie Benz, and Rebecca Gayhart on the uh, front of it, and it just looked really colorful. And why not watch something that seems, like, bright and colorful? For Rotten Tomatoes score, we're looking at a 14% um, on the tomato meter, and then a 55% audience score. Um, we're also looking at a IMDb score of 5.6 out of 10, and then a letterbox score of 3.3 out of 5. I also thought it would be kind of fun to um, look at some uh, critical response quotes um, about this movie uh, at the time. So I have three of them that I pulled, these log lines for it. Um, Gary Brown from the Houston Community Newspapers uh, stated, I'd just as soon have my jaw broken than to sit through this one again. So that's fun. (laughs) Got Owen Gleiberman from Entertainment Weekly, who I think was like the chief like critic for movies and TV at that time. Uh, he states uh, a synthetic yet shrill sadomasochistic cartoon, which I mean he's not wrong about it. I don't know if it's a good or bad thing, but uh, definitely not wrong. And then our one and only Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times and also from At The Movies on television at the time uh, stated a slick production of a lame script. So that's fun. Um, this movie was pretty much shot in uh, all around Los Angeles, it seems like. And it was uh, shot in 30 days with like six day weeks for some of the actresses at the time, which... Sounds like a lot, um, especially when you're on set for hours and hours a day. Um, that can be quite a bit. Um, but yeah, and this also was not supposed to be, I think, theatrical released. It was actually supposed to be initially a home video release, which is probably how the project got greenlit for the weird, you know, idea that it was. And um, for some reason, it just got fast tracked to be put into theaters, and it was able to get into theaters for for a little bit. There wasn't too much marketing of this movie, it seemed like, either. Um, I think 
you know, they might have gotten, like, again, they had, like, two of the actresses go to Sundance and do that circuit. Uh, I think they had a movie special on MTV that had some of the actresses on it as well with one of the VJs, which I think you can find on YouTube, actually. Uh, I don't remember what the name of it was, but it was, like, No Candy Ass or something like that. Um, And it's, like, a special for Jawbreaker that has, like, the main actresses in it, which I think is really interesting. Um, But let's get started with our plot summary. I just watched this film not too long ago and have a little bit of a summary. So I got some bullet points here to talk about the film. And then throughout, I'll also be talking about some fun tidbits after each bullet point, um, you know, that can be kind of fun to talk about. So we open on this hallway scene. Uh, We have these four girls who are the flawless four. Um, And then you see in the middle of them uh, a girl by the name of Fern Mayo, played by Judy Greer. Um, She's walking down the hallway as the flawless four are walking down the hallway. And she drops her books and her papers. So the flawless four consists of Courtney Shane, who is played by Rose McGowan, at that time was known for being uh, in the Doom Generation and Scream. You have Julie Benz uh, playing uh, Marcy Fox, known to herself as Foxy. Um, she had probably uh, been most well known for being on Buffy at the time. She was actually the first person who was ever on Buffy <laughs> on the first episode. She played one of the vampires. Um, and then I believe it was Rebecca Gayhart playing Julie Freeman. At this time, she would have been most well known for being in Urban Legend, uh, even though I'm pretty sure that Urban Legend actually shot after uh, Jawbreaker did. Uh, I think Jawbreaker was done in the spring of 1998, and then like in April of 1998 or something like that, that's when they started shooting Urban Legend. Oh, don't worry. I'm going to make an episode of that one, too. But, um, and then you have Liz Purr, played by Charlotte Ayana, uh, who, fun fact, uh, actually was uh, Miss Teen USA 1994. So it's kind of funny that like she decided to take on a bit of an acting career uh, after her win. Um, and she was in The Rage Carry 2. She played a character in there. Um, but this is probably one of her most best well-known roles, um, playing Liz Purr, a girl who doesn't really even speak. So, um, anyway, you have these girls walking down the hallway, and you get a little bit of an idea of each of them, and, uh, then you pan over to Liz's house, and you see her sleeping in her room, and the voiceover is talking about, you know, uh, how Liz Purr was special, you know, she was beautiful, rich, popular, smart, um, and she was like the princess die of Reagan High. Um, and that really pissed Courtney off. And that she was just so perfect. And it's just a shame about what happened to her. And then you go into a kidnapping scene where you see three uh, masked assailants. Uh, one puts a jawbreaker into her mouth and then the others tie her up put her in the back uh, trunk of a car, and then drive away. And you find out that these are actually her friends, Courtney, Marcy, and Julie, playing a prank on her on her birthday. So they're taking her to a diner um, where they're going to uh, stuff her pretty face with pancakes and then tie her to the flagpole in her bra and undies and watch the fun begin. Uh, sounds like great friends to me. <laughs> And they take her to this diner, uh, and they pop the trunk open while Courtney's about to take a Polaroid, and they realize that Liz is absolutely dead as a doornail. And so, uh, then Courtney's all like, oh, you know, I didn't just didn't want her to scream, I thought a jawbreaker would be funny to gag her with, and... Then Julie's all like, you gagged her with a jawbreaker? Like, what? And you have the title sequence um, coming up, and it's showing you how supposedly jawbreakers are made. Um, And it's going through all the cast and the crew and everything. And then it comes back to uh, the girls driving to school. You see Marcy's just, like, crying. Julie's freaked out. And then Courtney's just driving the car. (laughs) Um, And they decide before they go to school, they have to call in sick for Liz. So Courtney then calls in sick for Liz putting on the most, like, drag queen voice ever. Um, Miss Sherwood, please. Yes, hi, Miss Sherwood. This is uh, Miss Per Elizabeth's mother. Yes, I'm sorry, but um, Elizabeth won't be at school today. It's so, so weird. But anyway, so you have um, the call-in sick. It buys them at least a couple, a day or two. Um, And then after they call in sick for her, uh, they then arrive at school. 
And then once they arrive at school, um, you know, they have a little pep talk, you know, okay, Liz is in the trunk of this car and she's dead. That is sad and fucked up, but you're going to walk in there and strut your shit. Like everything's peachy fucking keen. Get it? You know, that kind of thing. And then you have the iconic walk scene down the hallway that has been recreated in other TV shows and films and parodied and everything. Um, but that's the kind of the first bit of the movie. Um, during this time, so the opening hallway scene, the first one, um, was shot, and a lot of these interior school shots were actually shot at University High School in Los Angeles. This um, school was used for um, different movies and TV shows. I think some of the exterior shots of the school were used for uh, the TV show Even Stevens, and then also Lizzie McGuire as well, for some reason. Uh, any early 2000s music fans uh, may also recognize this as the school in the music video for Leave Get Out by JoJo, which I think is kind of funny because then JoJo would end up being um, in one of Darren Stein's uh, next directorial um, works, which was GBF. She plays one of the characters at that school, so... I thought that was kind of funny. And this opening scene um, with the voiceover from Fern and everything uh, was actually uh, added in. Uh, the initial scene was just the kidnapping scene in the initial beginning. And uh, test audiences thought it was too startling. It was too intense. And I actually agree with them. I think it's better this way where you get to learn a little bit about the girls. Um, you learn about Liz uh, because she doesn't speak or anything. She's not really a... Uh, a talking character or anything. So um, you get to know about her and how great she was, apparently. And, um, you know, it's all the more sad when she passes away. Liz's house, in particular, is located in Hancock Park. It's an actual house that was being lived in at the time of shooting. Um, so I think the tenants just, like, let Darren Stein use the house for a month and moved out there, moved out of there for a bit, and then came back. Um... And then also, I have the 20th anniversary Blu-ray of this movie that has a director and cast commentary on it, and it had Judy Greer, Rebecca Gayhart, and Julie Benz, and Darren Stein all together talking. Rose uh, McGowan was unfortunately unavailable. She was in New York while they were in L.A. Um, but Judy Greer, at the time of that recording, said that she lives near that house, um, and she walks her dog near it every now and then, and so it's kind of fun when she can like look at the house and be like, oh, that's the house we shot Jawbreaker at. And then Rebecca Gayher also mentions that she drives by that house as well, which is kind of funny when you're living in a place like L.A. and you can just, like, see places where you've probably, like, done a movie or something or a TV show, uh, especially if you shoot on location somewhere. Judy Greer also mentioned that this movie was actually her first job in L.A., which was kind of cool. I mean, uh, before this, she had only really been in, like, a low-budget uh, horror movie with werewolves called Stricken. And then the other movie she was in was Kissing a Fool, which is currently on Stars right now if you want to watch it. I don't think it's really that good. But um, Judy Greer's in it. She plays, um, it has uh, David Schwimmer, Jason Lee, and Millie Avital as like the lead characters. And Judy Greer plays Millie Avital's uh, sister in this shit movie. Uh, and it's weird because you see that, like, actually Judy Greer was rocking blonde hair, which in this uh, movie, Jawbreaker, she actually has a wig on. So, like, she has this brunette hair that makes her look all mousy, like she's supposed to be. But, uh, yeah, I thought that was kind of fun. But she talked about how that was her first job in L.A. And um, how, um, yeah, she got this really kind of last minute, which was crazy. Uh, let's see what else. You'll notice in the title sequence, Julie Benz has long hair, and uh, you'll also notice in the movie that she has short hair uh, in the actual movie. Um, she wasn't exactly happy about getting her hair cut <laughs> like that, uh, and I think one of the reasons she wasn't very happy about that was because uh, it actually happened, she got her hair cut six weeks before her first marriage, uh, so that's got to be awkward. Um Fun fact, if you didn't know this, but Julie Benz's first husband uh, is a gentleman by the name of John Kassir. And if you don't know who John Kassir is, well, um, he's mainly known as the, the sole voice of the Crypt Keeper from the Tales from the Crypt series. So he did the television show on HBO. He did both the movies that came out. He did the... Uh, the children's show that came out, uh, Tales from the Crypt Keeper, all that kind of stuff. He's like the official voice. He was also the voice of Deadpool back in the 90s before Deadpool had his own movie. Um, 
And yeah, he was also on the Amanda show as one of the adult actors. If anybody watched that, like I did. Um, and yeah, they were married for a couple of years and they, they got divorced. But, uh, you know, it's kind of funny that like, you know, he was with, he was with someone like Julie Benz, you know, um, you just don't think about that, I guess. Um, but, and also he's kind of a hometown hero because he's from Baltimore in particular. So that's cool. He went to Towson University apparently. So it's always nice to, to see some local people. Um, the location that they drive to in the beginning, uh, where they find Liz's body in the trunk, uh, is a local L.A. diner. It was called Johnny's Broiler. I think it's still pretty much there. I think it just got renovated. This uh, location was used in other movies. Uh, it had been used in Can't Hardly Wait, which I believe was also uh, released by the same studio that Jawbreaker got released from. Um and it was sort of a rival of them. Uh, so Can't Hardly Wait, uh, it was used in that. And it was also used in Reality Bites from 1994 with Winona Ryder and Ethan Hawke. Um, in the movie, there's a scene where uh, Winona Ryder and Janine Garofalo, they go to um, a diner, uh, and the diner is Johnny's Broiler. So that's kind of fun. Um, you'll notice throughout the movie that Julie Abenz, Marcy, is wearing a um, necklace that says Foxy. And actually, that Foxy necklace um, was... Uh, Julie Abenz was allergic to it. And so they actually had to put clear nail polish on it so she wouldn't get a rash. That's kind of fun. So, the fun of, you know, being on a, a movie set. <laughs> Uh, the title sequence is uh, actually not how jawbreakers are made. If you want to know how jawbreakers are made, there's a fun YouTube video that tells you all about it. But uh, really, the production team just found props uh, in local L.A. shops around the town and just set them up in a studio um, that uh, could show what a jawbreaker, like how a jawbreaker could be made. Um, but this is not actually how jawbreakers are made. The initial scene um, in the car after the title sequence was actually the audition scene for these roles. So these three actresses uh, probably used this as their audition um, to talk about. So that was kind of crazy. And you'll notice throughout the movie that there is a circular shape motif going on um, to kind of indicate jawbreakers. So you'll notice, like, the girls wear hoop earrings a lot. You might notice in their clothes they have, like, different, like, circular patterns. Um, you'll also notice in other parts of production design, you'll see spheres, globes type of thing um, going on. Um, and you'll see that, and, and it's kind of a kind of a nice little touch that they had. Uh, we'll get to the fashions of this movie, too. They're amazing. The costumes of this movie were done by Vicki Brinkford, who's now Vicki Barrett, and she actually was a costumer on Clueless and Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion with Mona May. Um, and again, like I said, you know, you see that motif of bright and colorful in the fashions of this movie, uh, which I think is just so great. It takes 1950s fashion a little bit, kind of turns it on its head and brings it into this like 90s world. Um, but I absolutely love the fashions of this movie. When Courtney and the gang come up to the school, I think it's funny that on her parking brick it has her literal name. I just think it's so funny. It's a little thing that you can miss really quickly, but I think it's really funny. And the other fun kind of thing was that during that uh, hallway walk scene, um, it was either Julie Benz didn't know how to walk in heels, or the heels that she got in particular were just really squeaky. But pretty much any time that they did that hallway walk scene, uh, her shoes would actually just squeak. Um, which is just really awkward when you're having to do it take after take, probably, but I just think that's kind of funny that, like, when you think about it, you see this iconic hallway scene and just know that one of the actress's shoes were just so loud and squeaky. So that's just really funny to me. Also, fun fact about um, crew on this movie. So the director of photography for this movie was Amy Vincent, who has since gone on and done other work as well. Um, but before this movie, she actually did a movie called Eve's Bayou from 1997. Uh, if you have not seen Eve's Bayou, please go see it. Uh, it was on Paramount Plus for a minute. Um, and I'm trying to see. Let me let me make sure I know where it's at so that I can tell you real quick, because I think that is such a good movie. Um, it is about a 
black family in Louisiana in the 60s. You have Samuel L. Jackson, Lynn Whitfield, Journey Smollett, Megan Good, like... Oh, it's such a good movie. It's Southern Gothic family drama with some voodoo in there a little bit. It's just so good. Um, currently, right now, as of the recording, it is on Tubi, but it's going to be leaving Tubi at some point soon, uh, maybe near the end of the month or something. So please go watch it. Um, but even pull up and like just get it on, you know, rent it or something. Like I think it's totally worth it. But anyway, so that is what Amy Vincent had done before this movie, which is kind of cool. Um, I didn't know that until, you know, I listened to the commentary and I was like, oh, shoot, that's kind of cool. So there's that. All right, let's go back to the plot summary um, that I got going on. So the girls go into the bathroom when they get to school and you are introduced to Fern a little bit more as a character. You see that her and Julie may have known each other before because uh, Courtney and Marcy don't even know what her name is. So, but Julie knows what her name is, which is kind of cool. Um, so you're like, oh, they must have known each other. And then you see Miss Sherwood coming in. Uh, Miss Sherwood is played by Carol Kane uh, from When a Stranger Calls, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, you know, Wicked on Broadway, all that. Um, and she plays the um, the principal. She plays the vice principal or assistant principal, I believe, um, in this movie. I'm just saying, I think it would have been great to have a principal... Um, played by, like, a fun cameo. I would have totally been into having, like, Barry Bostwick or somebody play the principal. That would have been so funny to me, but that's that's my own little thing. Anyway, so Miss Sherwood's in the bathroom with the girls, being like, no loitering in the girls' room, trouble brews in the girls' room. And she's talking about, like, hey, not so fast. Like, you know, um, Liz is out sick today. Like, um, can one of you come by and get her assignments? And, you know, she kind of volunteers <laughs> Courtney to come get them. And so then, you know, they leave the, um, the bathroom and they go on about their day. So each girl is in a different class and you see little scenes within their classes. So uh, Julie's in English class where her teacher's talking about guilt and Shakespeare and all. And that's a whole scene. Has Tatiana Ali in there. She plays one of the, uh, she plays Brenda. Her name's Brenda. She's one of the cheerleaders from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Then you have anatomy class with Rose McGowan with Courtney. Uh, her boyfriend, Dane, played by Ethan Erickson. Um, we'll get to him in a little bit, too. But um, the teacher's talking about how um, the female anatomy uh, at one time was, you know, being done. They're talking about the female anatomy or something like that in there. And how um, autopsies had been done in previous years and things. It's kind of a weird thing. And then Dane waggles his tongue at uh, Courtney, and she's just like, ew. And then home ec class, good old home ec class, with Julie, uh, or no, sorry, not with Julie, um, with Marcy. And she's just, like, trying to crack an egg into a little bowl, and then that egg is a stillborn, and it's all bloody. And, of course, the goth girl who um, I'm obsessed with, played by Anne Russo, um, but at the time, Anne Zupa was her name. Uh, she just says, cool, you've got a stillborn, and puts her nail in it, like a weirdo. But anyway, so you then see these girls eating outside on the bleachers, uh, and they're just, like, you know, hanging out, and Courtney's like, you know, we can just put her back in bed. And they're like, we can't, you know, Julie's like, we can't just put her back in bed, and it's because she has a jawbreaker stuck in her throat, like, how can we do that? So Courtney's all thinking, like, oh, okay, maybe we can do, like, you know, she was up late, you know, sucking on a jawbreaker. And then Marcy kind of insinuates that, like, maybe she was practicing, you know, and swallowed, <laughs> you know. And that gives Courtney the idea of, like, wait, they'll check to see if she was assaulted, pretty much, right? Like, they'll check to see if she was raped. Um, and this gives her this idea of, like, you know, people will believe that this perfect girl was just obliterated by perversion, you know, and some of these lines are just so grandiose, and I think that's what really helps this movie be just, like, a weird camp movie, um, because people don't talk like this, people don't dress like this, and that's totally fine, but, um, but you have a little bit of that, and so that's another little part that I got going on with here. I'm trying to see if there's any other fun facts that I can think of. Um, so Carol Kane, when she is in the bathroom with the girls, um, she has a line where um, Courtney's wearing looks like bustier with like a little cover all on top of it, and Carol Kane is like, 
you know, please cover your bosoms, Miss Shane. This is a learning institution, not a brothel. And then she's just like, do it yourself. Like, don't and pretty much, um, but she actually improvised the do it yourself line, which I thought was really funny. Um, in the Julie classroom scene, you'll notice that the lighting in there, it's actually inspired by like film noir a little bit, because I do see a little bit of like film noir in this movie. Um, even like the beginning scene where they discover the body is supposed to be kind of like a nod to gangster movies of like the thirties and forties. Um, and so, you know, and even I think Rose McGowan, like literally based her character of Courtney off um, a movie from back in the 30s or 40s with Gene Tierney called um, Far From Heaven or something like that, uh, where this woman plays a sociopath pretty much, and pretty much Courtney Shane's a sociopath, I guess. Um, but it makes sense. Uh, and actually, Darren Stein had um, stated on the commentary track that Rose McGowan said that she did want to actually play three roles where she could do Courtney, Fern, and Violet all together. Um, but that was also, that might have been a joke just because, like, um, the actress who initially was supposed to play Fern Violet was, uh, it, you know, she had to drop out or quit or whatever. So Judy Greer was a last minute kind of um, addition. And it's kind of crazy how she got it. She literally was in LA for a couple days, um, and she was doing pilot season got this emergency page on her beeper when she was, like, in line at the airport going to her friend's house. And they, she went to this casting agency. They literally gave her... They told her, like, hey, we're going to cast you. And she was just like, okay, I guess. Um, so it's kind of crazy how that worked. Uh, also, Rachel Lee Cook was considered and actually pretty much almost cast as Julie. Um, but they instead decided to go with Rebecca Gayhart, probably because they had Rachel Lee Cook read with, Ro with Rose and Julie Benz, and I don't think it really worked. It, the chemistry just didn't really work. But also, when you look at Rachel Lee Cook, um, at that time at least, she looked like a teenage high school student, you know, whereas these other girls looked like they were in their 20s, which was kind of a little bit of the part of this movie is that you see these kind of little homages to Carrie and Grease throughout. Um, and I think this movie also has like these 20 somethings playing teenagers, you know, so. Definitely there's that. Anyway, back to our plot summary. So Fern then comes to Miss Sherwood's office and she asks, you know, hey, are you going to be chaperoning this um, annual Bahardi that the Botany Club has? Um, and Miss Sherwood's like, I wouldn't miss for the world. Um, and Fern, Miss Sherwood actually asks Fern, like, hey, do you know Elizabeth Purr? And Liz, and Fern's all like, you mean meow? You know, Liz is the cat's meow. And you start getting a little bit of like, okay, I guess she knows her. And um, anyway, Miss Sherwood asks her, hey, can you um, maybe take these assignments to her? Because um, I had, you know, Courtney Shea was supposed to do it, but she's late. And uh, Fern jumps at the chance. She's just like, hell yeah, well, even without getting the address. But for some reason, she knows where she lives, I guess. Um, anyway, so then you see the three girls. You see the, uh, whatever their name is now. But like, um... You see the three girls, you know, coming to Miss Sherwood's car as she's leaving, and they're like, hey, you know, I forgot to get Liz's homework, but I'm getting it now. And then uh, she's all like, oh, yeah, you were tardy, but, you know, thankfully for Mayo came by my office, and, you know, it got the assignment. She's on her way now. And they're like, oh, no, we have to get there before Mayo does. You know what I mean? So then they drive back to Liz's house. They take her in uh, to her room and drop her off in the bed. And they're putting her back in bed, and Marcy and Courtney are just, like, trying to reconfigure her, pretty much, to, like, make it seem like she was maybe assaulted or whatever. And you could just tell that, like, Julie is not into any of this, and she's just, like, uh, she's sitting at her friend's vanity. She um, ends up finding uh, a greeting card from the last year's prank, and it had her voice on it. Um, which was weird, which that greeting card will come back into play. But um, you start to see that, you know, Julie's just not really into any of this. Um, 
Marcy like turns Liz's head and she screams because her eyes are open and they're looking at her. And so that kind of is the catalyst for Fern to investigate a little bit further because she ended up coming to the door. She's rehearsing this like little little monologue she has for for um, for Liz. But then she starts to investigate, like, okay, well, what's going on here? And then Fern investigates upstairs, upstairs. Then you kind of see these three girls just, like, kind of fighting with each other. And Julie's like, I can't do this. I just can't do this. You can't just say someone was raped because they're in their bed with their legs spread, you know? Uh, like, it's just so weird. And then Julie's about to leave, and you see that Fern has been outside the door the whole time as she, you know as this was all going down. And so then, pretty much, uh, they confront Fern. Courtney's like, what did you hear? You know, tell us what you heard. And then Fern actually sees the body of um, Liz, and they, you know, she runs outside, she's, like, all shaken up, and then Courtney kind of thinks of this idea of, like, hey, you know, fate has decided that you'll be cool and become one of us, like, take her place, you know? And, um... It's really gross and disgusting, actually. Um, and Julie's totally not into this idea at all. Um, and then you pretty much see after that, you know, Fern going into this new person. She's now blonde. She's wearing different clothes. Um, you will learn that her name is now Violet, um, or that's that she's going by now. Um and it's kind of this weird, just like, I don't know, it's this weird scene, this little transformation scene going on, which I think is like so cool, actually. Um, and then once that happens, Liz's parents actually come home. Her parents are played by PJ Souls and William Cat of uh, the movie Carrie's fame. Uh, Norma was PJ Souls, and then William Cat played Tommy Ross, the ill fated prom date to Carrie. Um, and then. They come home and they find their daughter in bed dead. So a couple things about this uh, part of the movie. So let me just see. I'm looking on my phone real quick. You'll notice that throughout uh, this film, as I stated, there's a motif of circular, um, you know, uh, shapes. But also you'll notice in Ms. Sherwood's office, there's a motif of butterflies throughout her office. And like she has a fern on one of her back tables in her office. And Darren Stein actually stated that like they they wanted to make it feel as if maybe Miss Sherwood was Fern in high school, which is why she kind of had this kinship with Fern a little bit, you know, and just really enjoyed her and loved her, I guess, you know, because um, she feels empathy for for Fern being that kind of mousy girl, um, even though Miss Sherwood ended up becoming the assistant principal of a high school, you know, but yeah, just knowing that there's that. Um, throughout the movie, you do see um, that Courtney has a shoulder tattoo in her and this was actually a real tattoo that um, Rose McGowan had. They didn't remove it. Um, they didn't. Tr they tried putting it makeup on it, and they tried doing CGI on it. I guess apparently, and it just didn't work um, to cover it. So this is a real tattoo that Rose had. She has since had it removed, actually. But um, they thought it would also just give her an edge, too, of, like, of course Courtney Shane is, like, the devil. Like, of course she'd have, like, a, a tattoo on her shoulder, right? Um, uh, I think also the uh, Fern Violet transformation I was talking about was actually inspired by Frankenstein, which completely, totally, utterly, I, I get that. Um, Tim Burton, like a Tim Burton movie. I got Edward Scissorhand vibes from it a little bit, um, but there's inspired by that. And then also just like kind of an interlude to a musical. Like it does seem like kind of like an interlude you would just see in a musical somewhere, you know? Um, it just has that theatrics that I think is really interesting. Um, let's see, let's see. Courtney's purple outfit that you see. So when you see Marcy, Courtney, and Violet walking down the hallway, um, her purple outfit was actually inspired by Grease. And it was also in the lunchroom scene that's coming up soon. Um, and then Liz's parents, when they discover her body, it's like a really quick shot. But this whole scene of the body being discovered was actually inspired by like a David Lynch kind of film, you know? Which I could totally see this being put into like something like... Mulholland Drive, or even like, I don't know, like, 
even one of her earlier works, like I could see this being in like a Blue Velvet type movie or or whatever. Um, I just thought that was really interesting. And then, as I stated before, Liz Purr in reality was actually played by a real um, teen beauty queen, which is just funny because she is a teen beauty. So then you have the lunchroom where, you know, uh, Violet has her debut and she gets her name. Um, you see that Julie is not really in the friend group anymore. Uh, and you get to learn a little bit about the group from Courtney of like, hey, we don't eat in public at school because we don't want people judging us. And now your name is going to be Violet because, you know, I thought Fern, you know, Fern's a plant, but I'd rather be a flower. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be a flower. Uh, Rose is too obvious, which is funny because her name's Rose. Um, but, you know, she was like, we're going to make you Violet. That's what we're going to do. Um, and then you have the introduction uh, of Vera Cruz, played by Pam Greer, who is very famously known as Foxy Brown, Coffee, uh, was in a bunch of black exploitation films. Uh, it's just an all around awesome chick. Uh, and so you learn about her a little bit, and she comes to see Miss Sherwood uh, and talks about, like, hey, I need some details about your student. Um, that went here named Liz Purr. So there's that. And then you have another scene after this where um, Julie is waiting for the bus and Zach, this guy Zach, comes up and is like, hey, Julie, what's what's going on? Uh, where are your friends? <laughs> you know, because he just sees her as like, oh yeah, she's in that friend group. Um, but she's just like, I don't really want to talk about it, Zach. And so then um, he offers her a ride back to her home uh, so he takes her home, and then uh, at home, Julie is looking through old photos that she has. And one of the old photos she comes across is like a class photo from elementary school, where I guess her and Fern went to the same elementary school. So she calls Fern on the phone using, you know, the operator. And uh, you see, uh, Fer, you know, Violet answers the phone, and they're just talking about, you know, Hey, Fern, do you remember fourth grade and how we used to have sleepovers and all this kind of stuff? And, you know, just talking about reminiscing about the past and talking about, like, it's just weird how time erases things. And then Violet's all like, oh, time doesn't erase things. People erase things. And then Julie's like, yeah, sometimes people erase people. And then you see um, Courtney then calls Fern and then uh, Julie's just, like, on call waiting at this point And then... She realizes that she's not going to talk to Fern again um, until like near the end of the movie. So um, that's how that pretty much ends. So a little bit about this in, uh, this part of the movie. The lunchroom scenes in particular, the, only these lunchroom scenes were shot at a different high school. <laughs> uh, that and the prom scene we'll get to as well. But these lunchroom scenes were actually shot at Notre Dame High School in Sherman Oaks, California. Uh, and famous alumni of that school include Rami Malek from Bohemian Rhapsody and uh, just general movie and TV. Kirsten Dunst, my lord and savior from everything from Bring It On, Interview with the Vampire, uh, Dropped It Gorgeous, everything. Um, and also Michelle Trachtenberg, Harriet the Spy herself, uh, and also from Buffy and, you know mysterious skin and all that so that's kind of fun and there was actually supposed to be like a different kind of lunchroom scene it was supposed to be outdoors it was going to be like in an acropolis kind of setting but i think because of budgetary restrictions they couldn't really do that uh, but that was the plan at least they did want to do that and actually if you notice like uh where the girls are sitting are is actually on a platform so they are a little bit higher up quote unquote than everybody else and you'll notice in julie's bedroom scenes and the pool scene that I'm going to talk about in a little bit, I was actually shot at a house on Mulholland Drive. Uh, the exterior of her home that uh, Zach drops her off at is actually shot in Santa Monica. It's just like a house in Santa Monica. And in Julie's room, you'll notice that there's a colorful glass design on her window behind her. So the same person who did that design actually did the mobile in Liz's room in the beginning, where you see this beautiful mobile. Um, it was the same glass you know, blower or whatever. So I thought that was kind of cool. So then you have the one, the most, one of the most iconic scenes ever is I call the big stick scene. So you see Dane again, played by Ethan Erickson, who is um, pretty much uh, 
with Courtney, and Courtney brings a big stick, which is a real popsicle, and um, she talks about, like, you know, I could do with a little kink. I want you to suck my big stick. And she, like, has him, like, deep throat this, like, popsicle and, like, suck on it while, like, she's going down on him. It's so beautiful and subversive <laughs> like it's great i love it so much but then they're interrupted by a knock at the door the knock at the door um is the police coming to see uh, courtney so there's the big stick scene it's very iconic i'll talk about it in a minute uh you then see a scene with marcy and her father her father's played by jeff conway rest in peace he was from uh, the movie version of Grease. Uh, he played Kaniki, but he was also in the original Broadway version of Grease. He actually played different roles in there. He, I think, even uh, played Danny a few times, which was kind of cool. Because uh, this movie is so based off of... It's so... Um, not based off of, but it, it is so inspired by Grease. Um, so there's that. And it's just her dad talking about, like, you know, I was watching Oprah today, and... Do you know what the topic was? Let me guess. Club kids? Um, and it was her dad just talking about, like, you know, you sound like a follower. You sound uneducated, you know? And and where did my little girl go, you know? Um, and then they're interrupted. His beautiful musical rendition of I Think We're Alone Now. Um, <laughs> which I'll talk about in just a minute. But, um is interrupted by a knock at the door where Marcy's just like, thank God I get to leave the table from this dinner. And then the next scene I have is the Julie and Liz pool scene. So you see Julie uh, goes out to this pool and she sees her friend Liz swimming in the pool and coming up in the pool. And it's like this steaming heated pool kind of thing. And uh, she's in this like Athenian like dress. It's like really beautiful. It's a really beautiful shot. Um, and it's just, like, her looking at this being, like, it's, like, a weird dream that she's had, I guess, um, but, you know, it, it's a really striking scene for sure, and then Julie's mom actually comes out and hugs and kisses her, because what you find out is that, um, everyone's starting to find out that Liz is, like, dead, like, she was actually dead, and so now the police are coming to each of their houses and all that, um, so some fun facts about this part of the movie, um, was that the big stick scene was definitely an homage to teen movies of the 80s, specifically something like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is one of my favorite movies. Uh, it was definitely to satisfy any gays that were watching the film. <laughs> and even just Darren himself, like, he was just like, I never saw anything like this in any of the teen movies I grew up with, so I thought, why not just throw it in there? You know, just pervert the youth of America at this point. <laughs> Uh, but if you've seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High, you know what scene that is. It's the beginning where Phoebe Cates teaches Jennifer Jason Lee how to give head to a carrot. So, you also... Darren has also stated that this movie uh, ended up finding an audience of girls, goths, and gays, which I completely believe and agree with. Um, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a girl, and I'm not really a goth necessarily, but I can understand gays for sure. Um, then we move on to the interrogation scene. So you have this interrogation scene with Vera Cruz. Um, and this was her just asking, like, you know, did you call in sick for Liz? You know, who was she banging? Um, have you ever seen a jawbreaker? You know? And, uh, you know, talking about, like, how the name says it all. It'll just break your jaw. And, you know, pretty fucked up name for a candy, isn't it? So then you have this other scene. It's the frozen hallway scene where Rebecca Gayhart is walking down the hallway and you hear or you see that all of these people are just frozen. And it's like so beautiful. It's almost like kind of like from a musical, if you will. You know, um, it's a very beautiful tableau. It's that in the, um, the Liz in the pool scene. I think it's a really beautiful, just like photo that could be put up in your house or something. You know, it's, it's very striking. Amy Vincent did that, I'm telling you. But anyway, so, um, frozen hallway scene, so it's kind of showing that, like, everything is just so, like, numb, <laughs> you know? And, uh, then you see Miss Sherwood and Miss, uh, Vera Cruz, uh, talking about, like, you know, I can't believe, like, this happened and all. Um, so you see a little scene with them where Vera talks about, like, some of the sweetest candies are as sour as death inside or something like that. But then you start to see that people are noticing who Fern is. 
So you're starting to see that, like, you know, the cheerleaders are noticing who she is and other people are noticing who she is. Uh, we heard that you were the last person to see his pair alive. That is so cool. You know, and just weird stuff like that. You also see um, the three girls walking through the hallway um, and they decide to sign uh, Violet up for the school play. And this is where Violet first says to Julie, like, my name is Violet. And Julie's just like, what the hell? Like, what? And then they have the iconic line of learn it, live it, love it, which I just think is so silly and wonderful. So a little bit about these parts. I'm trying to see if there's any fun facts that I put down. So Pam Greer was only on set shooting for like a day or two. So she did all her scenes at the same time. Uh, and actually, and she seemed like a perfectly nice person. She just was busy, you know, so it's not like she was chit-chatting a whole lot, but, um, you know, that's what you have when you get Pam Greer for a couple days. And then actually Carol Kane did a favor for Darren Stein and participated in a reading that he did for a musical that was going to happen, like a musical adaptation of Jawbreaker. And apparently in that musical... Miss Sherwood and Vera Cruz are actually the same character, the same person. So I thought that was kind of interesting about that as well. You also learn that uh, Zach is... You learn that Zach's last name is Tartak, I guess. So then you have the scene with Julie and Zach in the auditorium. Zach is played by Chad Christ, who actually played a young Ethan Hawke in Gattaca. Hasn't really done a whole lot since this, but um, again, you know, he, he was cool for what he did. So Zach is talking to Julie about, like, you just seemed so unapproachable before. I just thought it was so crazy when you were, like, waiting outside for the bus. Um, and Julie's just talking about, like, well, Liz is the only thing that actually meant anything to me with the other girls. Like, it was really just all games. It was bullshit. So then Zach and Julie, they start to kind of get together. They go to a drive-in where Zach apparently goes to, like, clear his thoughts. And then now she can find him there. Um... And after they go to the drive-in, you see the Violet interrogation from Vera. So Vera's asking about, like, you know, um, so somebody saw you at Liz's house, like, in, you know, somebody saw you at Liz's house, right? Like, with her school books and all that. And Violet's just talking about, like, you know, well, Liz and I never really officially met, but we had a class together, you know, and uh, I sat behind her and I would just look at these cluster of beauty marks on the back of her neck and I would just make little shapes and little figures with them you know and I just imagine them and you start to see that like maybe Fern was just either obsessed with or really infatuated with Liz you know and and she was you know showed her kindness if anything you know and and that meant something to Violet to Fern, you know? Um, but then Fern's just like, listen, she was nice. I did her a favor. Can I go now? And then she has a bad dream where she's like, you just see different shots from the movie, I guess. Um, but then you, uh, it, she wakes up in like a terror and she's just like, oh my God. But, uh, you start to see that Violet is starting to, to feel a little bit about this as well. Um, yeah, you start, you're starting to see that like, this is getting to her a little bit. She's having to deal with, with whatever she's dealing with. Um, so then the next scene we have is the Courtney interrogation, I guess you could call it, or Courtney and Vera. Um, so Courtney goes to Vera Cruz and says, you know, I don't know how to say this, but, you know, Liz had a craving for men and for sex. And she would, you know, hook up with men when, you know, her parents were out of town and all. Also, by the way, like, whose parents are going out of town that much? But anyway, that's besides the point. But um, you just see that um, going on. And she's building this case of, like, well, you know, my friend was like this. And I respected that, though. And I didn't want to tell anybody else. But she's pretty much trying to make it so that, you know, what she ends up having done kind of then makes sense but you have this scene and then you have what I lovingly refer to as the Violet bad bitch montage which is pretty much you start to see that Violet is just getting a little big for her britches so you see that like you know uh, Violet gets a car from somebody for making out with them and that uh, people around the school are like, you know, they're, you know, like people are finding out like who is this girl and who, what is she and all this and you know, this is where Zach first meets uh, Violet because she's the star of the school play. She's head cheerleader and all that. 
And um, I just love her bad bitch montage, though. It's kind of great because it's showing that her confidence is, you know, slowly and surely climbing. Um, she's really feeling herself now, and and that's going to prove to be her downfall in a way. Um, but a little bit about that part of the movie. So we have, this is kind of a fun little thing. So Courtney's wardrobe for meeting Vera is her I, trying to seem more innocent because she's way more covered up than she normally was, uh, which I just thought was really interesting. But when Violet gets the red car and she drives to school, so you'll notice that like um, you never see the back of the car. And that is because Judy Greer didn't know how to drive a stick shift, and that car was a stick shift. And pretty much guys from the transportation team of the movie had to push the car anytime that it looked like she was driving it, which I thought was really funny because I'm just like, okay, like (laughs) you have these guys just pushing your car now. It's just really fun. But then you see um, the drive-in that Julie and Zach go to. It was in Culver City, California, but it's probably no longer there. Um, But the next scene you have is... um, Zach and Julie go to the drive-in, and Zach is like, do you know a girl named Violet? And she's cast in the school play, but it's weird, because she told me she saw me in Greece twice, and then I and then I rocked her world. It just doesn't make sense to me. And then Julie's like, well, do you know a girl named Fern? Like, she's a little geeky girl. She does little errands from Miss Sherwood. And she pretty much tells Zach all what happened with this purr, what happened with Fern, and all this, and Zach's like, well, you, ha- you have to do something about it, you know? And she's like, I know, I know, but, like, you know, it's my word against Courtney's, you know? And then you see a scene with Courtney and Violet, so Courtney's like, alright, you know, my plan is working, like, Julie's gonna, you know, not have Zach anymore, and all of that. But then Marcy's like, you know, I think Violet's totally out of control. Like, the parking space she got, the car, just everything, I think she's out of control. And you then see um, <laughs> Violet outside of the uh, the school, just, like, writhing on the top of her car, like, on her hood. And it's just so funny and hilarious. And Courtney just pulls her in and pulls her into the school and pulls her in the bathroom and knocks her up against this mirror and is like, what the fuck are you doing? And it's this whole scene of like, you know, listen, bitch, like I'm just as strong as you are and I know what really happened. I can say anything. And it's such a good scene (laughs) because then like, um, Violet like is smoking a cigarette and like, then she blows smoke into Courtney's face and Courtney's just like, um, no, we're not doing this. I made you and I can break you just as easily. And it's just a beautiful confrontation scene. Um, cause it just shows that like Fern really is feeling herself and she's getting even bigger than Courtney. And then this is the catalyst for Courtney to try to bring Violet down, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, so Violet writhing on her hood of her car is absolutely a reference to Angeline. And if you don't know who Angeline is, um, there is a Peacock original series with Emmy Rossum where you can watch it if you have that, where you can learn. But pretty much Angeline was a model in the 80s um, who literally, I think, bought her own billboard. She wasn't really famous for anything in particular. She wasn't your traditional celebrity. She was just kind of famous for being famous. Um, but she was known for having like a pink Corvette, um, and you know, look up Angeline for sure. I think it'd be a fun time. Uh, and the Courtney and Violet bathroom scene, I think it's just so good. It was all done in one shot. Um, uh, Rose McGowan did not know that Judy Greer was going to blow smoke in her face. And so when she takes the cigarette out of her hand and throws it, that was because Courtney was just pissed about it and Rose was pissed um she didn't know and it was actually um so Courtney then wipes Marcy's lipstick and apparently that was inspired by Missy Pyle who did an audition for this early draft of the movie um who by the way if you don't know who Missy Pyle is she's I know her just because I watched the movie a couple days ago but um she was in Josie the Pussycats she played um a character in that and I absolutely could see her in this movie somewhere I think it would be hilarious but uh, she apparently auditioned for Courtney uh, in an early draft of this uh, but it was inspired by her 
which was kind of cool. And I was like, oh, all right, that makes sense. <laughs> so then you have, we're coming up near the end of the movie. So Julie and Zach, they decide to go back and see like, all right, like, well, what proof do we have? What evidence do we have? And Julie remembers that Courtney took a photo of Liz and the photo might still be, you know, at that diner, right? And they end up going, they don't find anything, even though the photo is actually just in the gutter. They just didn't look hard enough. Um, and then they do try to go to Vera Cruz to confess. And then pretty much, um, Vera is like, well, you know, we already have a suspect in custody. Um, we already, you know, saw this. Um, I guess I'll talk a little bit about that in just a bit, but, um, Julie then is like, well, what happened? Except maybe somebody went back to the, to the scene of the crime and, you know, and did something. And she then puts it all together that like, oh God, Courtney went back, had sex with some guy to make it look like Liz was m raped and murdered. Um, and now she's just like, all right, we got to do something about this. Like we gotta, we gotta bring this bitch down. Right. So then the next scene you see is that, um, Violet comes to school and she sees all these posters. It says, who is Violet with a picture of Fern Mayo on it. And people realize that like, that's actually Fern under that Violet drag. Pretty much. She goes to the nurse's office where she gets a, uh, a bandaged head wound, I guess. Uh, and she is pretty much made to be this, uh, she's this failure, you know, and, and um, it's so sad because all she wanted was just to be sort of popular and not just be, you know, mousy little Fern Mayo. Um, so then, you know, uh, Julie and Zach come to school. They see this whole thing. It's like, oh, God, this is so horrible. Um, and then they confront Courtney and Marcy. Uh, and Julie's like, what did you do, Courtney? What have you done? Like, you ruined some guy's life, you know? And, uh, like, you know... Courtney says, you know, life's a bitch, then you die. And then Julie's just like, no, honey, you're the bitch. And then you start to see that, like, you know, um, this is all just, you know, coming to an end. It's coming to a crumble. So a little bit of information about that um, is actually uh, Darren Stein has, like, a copy of the Who Is Violet poster. And he just has, like, a poster of it in his house, which, honestly, I would, too. Um the particular scene with Violet where people are just like making fun of her, yelling at her in the hallway, making fun of her. That is absolutely like a nightmare sequence. And also very much like the plug it up scene from Carrie. You know, I, I definitely got vibes of that a little bit. Um, and then what else? I believe also with the um, confrontation of Julie and Courtney and all them, First off, I think it's funny when Courtney's like, you know, look, Mars, it's like Turns of Endearment Part 3, only this time the boyfriend's gay. Yeah, and the rest of the cast sucks, um, which is funny because I think apparently Darren Stein really likes Terms of Endearment, so it's kind of funny that he put that in there. Um, and then also you notice that, like, Rose McGowan doesn't really deliver the line, lies a bitch, then you die very convincingly because uh, she didn't really want to say it, but it kind of helps as well with the scene. Um, so then the next scene you have is the beginning of prom where people are coming over to prom. Um, you have the scene where Zach, Julie, and Fern are all driving in Zach's car. Um, you know, we need to, she needs to pay for what she did. Um, and <laughs> you, you have the little like, oh, well, great, Zach. Like, let's, you know, and by, and, you know, on our way going to prom, like, let's stop by and get some pig's blood or whatever. Um, but you start seeing this prom, you see the, the Donna's are the, uh, are the, uh, entertainment, which is awesome and wonderful. Um, and you just see this prom scene and then you see a scene with, uh, Rebecca Gayhart in her room. I like that she's playing with like this weird, like toy and she throws it. Um, but her mom actually had some stuff from Miss Purr, you know, came over and gave some stuff of Liz's. And she finds this greeting card. And the greeting card from the beginning is pretty much you find out that Courtney accidentally recorded herself saying, I killed Liz. I killed the teen dream. Deal with it. Um, and she's like, oh, God, this is the evidence we need. Oh, good. Thank God. And so then her and Julie and Fern 
So, yeah, so Julian, Fern, and Zach all show up at prom. Uh, and they come in, and, of course, they're getting made fun of by some of the popular girls, you know, getting some lesbian slurs thrown at them a little bit. Um, and then you have Courtney, who's like, uh, excuse me, like, I think there's a certain announcement that has to be made. Like, I'm prom queen, duh. And um, then you see Julie and Fern sitting together, and then you see Miss Sherwood going up on stage and announcing who is the king and queen of prom, uh, while all the while Zach goes backstage and is trying to solder this greeting card to the like audio system or whatever because he's in theater and he can do that um, to make it so that everyone can hear what this greeting card has to say. And so then you find out that the prom king and queen are Dane Saunders and Courtney Shane. So Courtney goes up and you know it's very much like a carry type of scene in a weird way. Um, you see that, you know, uh, Courtney is now the prom queen and then the greeting card ends up getting revealed. And then everyone at the prom sees that Courtney was actually the one who killed Liz. She was the one who caused Liz's death and it's her downfall. And so Dane seems like really hurt and, you know, he gives the little, like, scepter back to Courtney, and then people are, like, outraged, and they're like, oh my god, that bitch, like, how dare you, that's horrible, and they're all yelling and jeering at her and throwing corsages at her, which is great, um, and then she's just, like, going down the middle of this, like, mob of people, um, and then at the end of this line, while Bing Crosby's Young at Heart is playing overhead, um, you see Julie at the end of this line, and then Courtney's just like, Julie! She's like crying, and then all Julie just says is, smile pretty Courtney, and she gets a photo of her, which then goes to the yearbook. Um, so I'm trying to think if there's any fun kind of facts of like the end of this movie. Uh, pretty much this is a whole like carry homage, if you will, um, of course, uh, obviously. Um, trying to see what else there is. The Donnas were, uh, it was kind of a slight homage to Heathers because each one of the members of the Donnas is not actually named Donna, but they go by Donna, which is kind of like Heathers a little bit. That's really funny to me. Um, also for the, um, the shot where Courtney is like being thrown corsages at and all that, um, it's very much like a Spike Lee movie, <laughs> kind of like Girl 6 a little bit where like they just kind of attached Courtney to, like, a dolly or something, and, like, they just have her, like, going on this camera dolly where it just looks like she's floating, which is really weird, but very much like a Spike Lee type movie, but um, it's very much like the the pig's blood scene in Carrie or any of these things. Um, and then that's how the movie ends, pretty much. And so, I mean, this film, to me, is just such a fun and campy time. I really enjoy it and, and love it. I think it got unfairly compared to Heather's, even though, yeah, you know, they both take place in high school. They're both kind of acerbic and, you know, bitchy in their dialogue. But really, I think Jawbreaker was a whole different story um, than Heather's. You know, it's very much about, um, it's about these girls, you know, it's about the inner workings of this girl clique. And, you know, if anything, like, yeah, the movie has influence from Heather's, but also we're talking like, you know, Frankenstein. We're talking, you know, girl gang movies from the 50s. We're talking Russ Meyer movies, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, and like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and stuff, which is then really funny because Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was written by Roger Ebert, and he gave like a horrible review for this movie, um, which still kind of makes Darren Stein a little bit mad, I think, or at least at the time of one of the articles I read, he was like, yeah, that's weird because, like, this guy literally wrote a, such an amoral movie, but, like, he's talking about my movie and how horrible it was. So, anyway. But that is it for Jawbreaker. I love this movie so much. I think you should watch it if you haven't already done so. Um, know that it's going to be a movie where you don't want to ask a whole lot of questions because you're probably not going to get many answers from it. But I really do appreciate and enjoy it. Um, and I hope you will, too. But now we're going to wrap up and end the show so as always you can send me an email at cultcinemacircle at gmail.com in case you wanted to give any movie recommendations give feedback on the show or just say hey girl hey um i'm totally open to all of it 
You can also follow the show, Cult Cinema Circle, on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram handle is Cult Cinema Circle, and then Twitter handle is Cult Cinema Circle. Um, and then I also have a Letterboxd, if you want to follow me on Letterboxd, at Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, Kremp, K-R-E-M-P. And I'll have all the social media links uh, on a uh, Linktree link in the show notes of this episode. Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher of choice. And just remember, I killed Liz. I killed the teen dream. Deal with it.